0: This class is brought to you by our friends at Sumas, the revolutionary health benefit solution that gives employees unheard of access to top medical specialists across the full range of medical specialties and employers a proven way to significantly lower their enterprise-level healthcare spend. It's a transformation of access made possible by Sumus's unique marketplace model that in as little as a day connects employees across the country with over 5,100 of the best specialists at the nation's top medical centers through an elegant, simple, medium agnostic platform, and a human relationship-based user experience. The quality of Sumus's solution is unrivaled. They are currently delivering seven to 10 times higher employee engagement, a 9.4 out of 10 employee satisfaction rate, and all while driving meaningful and measurable healthcare cost savings for the companies they serve. Now we are delighted Sumas customers, as are many companies in our ecosystem all of which are having amazing results, both in better health outcomes and material cost savings. So if you're looking for a benefit that provides huge value to both your employees and your bottom line, visit sumusglobal.com. That's S-U-M-M-U-S-global.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Art of Investing, the podcast devoted to helping you more fully experience the joys of compounding in all its forms. I'm Paul Buser, And I'm Rick Berman. We are your hosts. In each session, our teachers will be some of the world's most compelling people from across the vast range of human achievement. Take your seats. Class is in session.
2: This show is brought to you by Pine Grove Studios in collaboration with Colossus. The hosts of the show, Rick Berman and Paul Buzer are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Holdings and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Management Company. All opinions expressed by any of Rick, Paul, or their podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of either Sata Grove Holdings or Sata Grove Management Company. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Seda Grove Holdings or clients of Sata Grove Management Company may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Today, we celebrate the extraordinary life of John Glenn founder of Glen Capital, who passed away earlier this year. With a more than 50-year career as a technology investor spanning all the way back to the early 70s, John was truly one of the OGs of venture capital. Born and raised in Virginia, he was a Southern gentleman in Silicon Valley, rarely if ever seen without a coat and tie, and admired by all for his kindness, listening skills, and authentic humility. An early investor in a who's who of technology companies that have gone on to help shape our society, from Intel to Facebook, John developed a reputation as both an astute arbiter of megatrends, as well as a capital partner of choice to talented founders. In addition to investing, John was revered as a gifted teacher. For over 30 years, he taught courses on venture capital and entrepreneurship at his alma maters, Virginia and Stanford GSB. John built his own case studies and would revitalize them over time as technology advanced. Each class started with a handwritten chalkboard quote, a life lesson focused on ethics and the important aspects of life beyond work. Even more than his investing success in teaching accolades, John will be remembered as a devoted family man, and together with his wife, Barbara, thoughtful and compassionate philanthropists. John served in many roles at the University of Notre Dame, including the Board of Trustees. Among the Glynn family's most enduring legacies at Notre Dame remains the establishment of the Glenn Family Honors Program, a joint honors program in the College of Arts and Letters and College of Science that has produced numerous Rhodes and Marshall Scholars. It's probably clear by now why we loved and respected John so much. We're forever grateful for his advice as we were building Seder Grove to never stop teaching because it was such a superior and differentiated approach to learning. To properly honor John, we enlisted the help of our friend Patrick O'Shaughnessy to join us in interviewing John's son, David, who is managing partner of Glen Capital. We actually recorded the class at the Glen Family Honors Program facility located within O'Shaughnessy Hall on Notre Dame campus, which made this experience that much more special. With that, I hope you enjoy our class with Patrick and David as we honor the late, great John Glenn. Rest in peace, John. I'm joined by Patrick O'Shaughnessy and John's son, David Glenn. Welcome to The Art of Investing.
3: Thanks, Rick and Paul and Patrick. Great to be here.
2: Thanks, guys.
0: We wanted to celebrate John for so many reasons. And so I'm excited to unpack his story as an investor, as a father, as a husband, as a philanthropist. And we just feel that This is someone that needs to be celebrated often and a story that needs to be told.
2: To set the stage, could you take one minute and brag about him? Hit the things that when people hear it, they say, wow, holy cow, like stack those all up in a life. It's pretty wild. To start with,
3: and by far the most important, my dad had a happy, loving marriage that spanned over 50 years with four children and soon to be 10 grandchildren. And so right there, in my view, he's in pretty rarefied air. Honestly, if he were to brag about himself, which he never really did, he'd start there too. From a professional standpoint, look, as a country, Silicon Valley is arguably our most valuable resource. It's not a traditional natural resource, but the talent, density, and productivity that Silicon Valley has produced over the last several decades is incredible. And my dad identified this so early. He was there from the get-go, teaching and investing in the people who've helped build our modern economy. And it's really remarkable to just think about that for a minute. I'm proud to have even known him, much less been his son, who now runs the firm that he started. In a complex world, my dad kept things really simple and taught us to do the same. The investment strategy he established, the culture he helped build, and the lessons and values he taught, and the way he treated people, they're always going to be hallmarks of our firm. We miss him. I miss him. But even though he is no longer here in person, my dad's wisdom and spirit continue to help drive everything that we do. I mean, isn't that amazing? I think I'm just so proud of that, that your life, what you did... How you lived lives on in the hearts and mind of, minds of others. I'm not sure I can think of a better way to brag about what my dad accomplished in his life.
2: In the investing context, maybe give us, again, just continuing to set the stage for everything that will follow, the greatest hits, if you will, the companies that he was involved with at what stage, for what duration, just like the most interesting in your mind investments that he made across his career. So it starts with Intel. He had befriended the
3: founders of Intel, Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce, incredible people, and was able to invest in Intel at a $26 million valuation. They told me he was crazy, and maybe he was at the time, but that one worked out. But he was able to invest in companies across decades that were pretty interesting, you know, electronic arts, Sun Microsystems, linear technology, Intuit, Facebook, LinkedIn, sort of getting into the Advent Software, which if you ever go into a financial services firm and tell them you're going to rip out Advent Software, they they don't want to do that. Impossible to rip out. Yeah. <laughs> impossible to rip out. <laughs> Literally impossible. I tried. We've, we've tried too. We've tried to. We've tried to disrupt ourselves. And yeah. I, our CFO uh, gives me a stern look every time I bring
2: that one up. What was he looking like? If you had to unite each of those founders and companies, whatever industries, was there some through line that even as he, I'm sure, changed and matured and evolved with the times, was always there? Like, was there something consistently, maybe even you today are always looking for across companies?
3: Yeah, and I think just that connectedness between what my dad built, how that carries over to Glenn Capital and and how we think about the world today. We were talking about this earlier. Market, hugely important. So just sort of take that off the table for a second. It is people. It is trying to identify entrepreneurs that really wanna build something and wanna build a culture that attracts and retains other great people and are committed to that. Being an entrepreneur is really hard. When you look across that timeline of companies, I mean, he would always tell the stories about how Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce had center offices in the middle of a floor, never an outside office. They wanted to be right in the mix, just right with everybody. Those guys were just laser focused on the technology that they were building, the company that they were building, and what they wanted that to be. And it was just a commitment to that because being an entrepreneur, as I said, it's hard. It's really hard and you can't be in it to get rich quick. It's a much bigger thing than that. And so the common thread has always been people. What
2: motivated him?
3: I think partially success and whatever that means. You wanted to achieve that in all aspects of his life. So there was a balance to it because he wasn't the kind of person or kind of father that was working all the time and gone and missed everything. He was very present and home for dinner, and that was really important to him. He was very focused on balance in his life, but what drove him, I really think, was just success. We often talk in class about pivoting in your career to follow a line of
1: curiosity or that desire for success. We've talked, David, about your dad early on was actually a lawyer, went to law school, and you mentioned him being a risk taker. Talk about what happened there. If you're a successful lawyer, he might actually achieve what you talked about as his goal for life. And yet in this melting pot, crucible, if you will, of the early VC days in Silicon Valley, he decided to hitch his wagon to that train. Why, why did he do that?
3: For a little context, after Notre Dame, he went to University of Virginia Law School and did two very important things there, one more important than the other. He got his law degree, which was the second most important thing. And the first most important thing was he met my mom. And they fell in love and were married in Virginia. And after he graduated in 1965, they moved to California because he would gotten a job at a law firm out there. That's a risk. They didn't have a lot of money, really any money. They didn't really know anybody in California. But he went out there. And he realized very quickly that he didn't like the practice of law. It's really funny. He was always very involved with the Virginia Law School, loved the Virginia Law School, loved his class, loved being involved there, loved the study of law. But when it came to actually putting that in practice, he just realized that he couldn't do this, not only for the rest of his life, but for very long. And so he did it for about five years. But within that five years, he kind of popped his head up. And he was like, something's going on here. Like, I'm doing all this paperwork legal paperwork for these companies that are getting built. And he started reading about them and realizing what was going on. And he's like, I'm on the wrong side of the fence here. Like I'm in the wrong business. So I think it was two things. It was realizing what was happening in Silicon Valley then. And it wasn't called Silicon Valley then, but what was happening from a technology standpoint then and the innovation that he saw around him. And that is an opportunity. And he being a risk taker, kind of thinking about how do I get involved in that? And then really just not loving the practice of law. So he went to business school locally at Stanford. That was all she wrote. Because right after that, he got in the investment business and started his firm in 1974.
2: Did he work in investing prior to starting the business? He
3: worked for a gentleman named Reed Dennis, who was really one of the early venture capitalists in the industry. I mean, these are one of the guys sort of that invented the practice, but that was who he first worked for.
2: A friend of this group has read probably more biographies than anyone alive ever, this show called Founders Podcast. And I asked him what idea he hears the most about from his listener base. And he said, by far, it's this idea that the story of the father is embedded in the story of the son. And I'm curious how you react to that concept. And as you think about your story, what aspects of your dad are most embedded in your story? And I want the good and the bad, even in parenting, like things you do because your dad did them and things you do differently because your dad did them a certain way. So I would love you to just riff on that concept.
3: Growing up in our family, growing up in Palo Alto, California, with a father that was in the technology business, that's what we talked about. My dad and I didn't talk about girls or much else. I mean, it was really, we talked about what he did in investing wasn't as able to come down to sort of my level and yeah. talk about like, Hey, so what, what was, what happened at school today? <laughs> yeah. like, that just wasn't his program. He brought me into his world. I spent my entire life talking to him about companies that he was looking at technologies that he was interested in. He was so wonderful to allow me to go over to electronic arts when I was a young boy to, to test games. And so I had that as a job of testing games. I did that at the learning company too, which was another investment that he had had. But being able to be around that sort of a culture and entrepreneurs and those environments and that creative process was incredible. It was almost impossible for me, and it was cool. It wasn't as though he was putting me into some environment that was not easy to like. What 12-year-old boy wouldn't like to go test video games as a part-time job, that's okay. But it was impossible not to have that just seep in. And so I realized pretty quickly that at some point I would do something entrepreneurial or sort of tangentially related to that. So that's sort of the professional angle. I think that I'm kind of the very balanced mix of my mother and my, my father. And my dad would say that if you he were here. And he would say that, that's your mother and you. That's your mother talking. And that's why my parents had this incredibly beautiful marriage for over 50 years, because they were a yin and a yang. They just had different ways of viewing the world. Their values overlapped completely, but their way of doing things was very different. I can't say that I embodied my dad perfectly as a father or as sort of a person on a day-to-day basis because I'm pretty balanced. What does that mean? I too am driven by success to a certain degree. I love building. I love taking risks. I love being creative as he did, but I've got a bit of a softer side to me. Definitely comes from my mom.
0: One of the things that strikes me about your dad's both education journey and his teaching journey is that he was a tried and true multidisciplinarian. Over the course of the 60s, he essentially studies at three renowned universities, studying different disciplines. And he went on to continue to teach business law at, at Virginia and teach venture investing at GSB. What would you say about that side of him, that clear interest and in bringing together different areas of study, different disciplines. And how might that have shaped him, do you think, in his path as an investor? I remember when I was
3: about to come to Notre Dame and thinking about what I would study, I spent a lot of time talking to him about that. You know, I thought a lot about different classes and majors and whatnot. And he's like, I don't want you taking a lot of business classes. And I was just like, why? He was like, you'll learn all that stuff later. That's not that hard to learn. Go learn to read, to write, to think analytically. And I think that comes from his education as a lawyer. I mean, his ability to read and synthesize what he's reading and then to communicate that to others through either writing or speaking was really a strength of his. And I think something that was critical in terms of how he taught, whether it was in the schools that he taught at, whether it was at Glen Capital, for us at Glen Capital, writing is, is a very important thing. We don't do slides. We write. You know, we write memos. We write actual sentences. There's not a lot of bullet points. And I think that analytical horsepower, that ability to think that way is a huge part of it.
0: Was there anything that he did to cultivate that skill of listening, or was that just a gift he got from God? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it was a gift that
3: he got from God. He was naturally curious and interested in other people. I mean, I think it starts there. I think it's a little bit of empathy, but it's also just like a little bit of you're naturally curious about other people. And so he viewed every interaction with people as an opportunity to learn. And for him, the only way to learn was to listen really closely and really think about it. Think about it after the conversation, come back to it. It was just part of who he was. And then I think over time, you know, that just becomes an incredible habit and one that he followed till he died.
1: I'm just curious as we talk about your dad more in the last few years and what Glenn Capital is 50 years since its founding. It's fascinating to think about the, the reach it has, the brand it has, the team it has. Can we go back to day one? What was your dad thinking? Taking another risk, not only leaving the law. But jumping into investing and deciding to start his own firm, hang up his own shingle, what were the values he laid out then? and What was his vision?
3: Well, what he had seen was the emergence of an industry that really didn't exist for very many years before he got into it. You know, I'd say my dad was in kind of that second generation of venture capitalists, but his heroes were really that first generation. So venture started, think about it, in 1958. The government basically allows banks to invest in private companies, essentially. There's more to it, but that was the basic bit. But he watched how these people did it. And it was this partnership, because nobody had gigantic funds. It was an ecosystem of people. So there were a few small firms out there. And so he'd seen that emerge. And he started Glen Capital sort of in the vein of that. How can I start an investment firm that's really built around partnership, both internally and externally in that ecosystem? And I think this was the thing that he did that was so different is that he actually didn't start out investing in private companies. He wanted to, but in the fall of 1974, and I wish you were here to describe it, it was a terrible time you know, in the economy. So for you know a young kid to go out there and try to raise a bunch of capital for a 10-year lockup fund was tough. And so we was able to get some investors and cobble together and a couple of the gentlemen that I named earlier from that semiconductor company were nice enough to be a part of that. He had invested in public companies first and then invested in private companies in 1978. That was our first venture fund. But what he did was he never saw the line between public and private companies. He just saw company. What can this company be? five, 10 plus years out. And how can I get involved in that? That was really the ethos that he had. And there's a lot of firms trying to do that. Now, I won't say we were the first, but we were amongst the first to do that. And I think that was a huge piece of it. So it was build a firm that's really about partnership, both internally and externally. And I think that's so important. And then build a firm that was just structured differently. And thought about the investment process differently in terms of company identification, investing in those businesses, and then owning them over longer periods of time than you could if you were just one or the other in the private world or the public world. He kept things simple. He did not have some
2: 42-page manual of how to invest. It was pretty simple for him. He focused on those things. So if you had to boil that simplicity down as much as possible, maybe into like art and science of the process, flesh it out for us a little bit more. What, he seems like a wave rider to start. Like a, a lot of these stories you've told, not just in investing, but like, oh, I'm going to California. Like, oh, something's going on with VC. Oh, something's going on with semiconductors. These are external tailwinds that explained a lot of the story. Maybe just say a bit more about the simplicity, the art, the science. Any investor, you have to start with a big...
3: Market opportunity. And so he was always focused on that. It's tough to build a big company in a small market. He would always use this term waves of change. And I don't know if he coined that or wherever that came from, but he's used it for forever. I think for him and for our firm, it means something bigger, a little bit different than just a big TAM. What's really going on here? What's shifting in the ground? that's causing a tectonic change in sort of what's to come over the next 10 or 15 years. And so whether it was sort of the rise of the semiconductor or sort of the shift from mainframe to client server, or whether it was the shift to the internet or emergence of social media, whatever, my dad and our firm have been able to identify those things. And so to your question, it's a lot of observing and listening and reading and going out into the, our network of people, his network of people, trying to really figure out what's going on. So not think about it in terms of like putting capital to work and you know investing, but really thinking about what's changing, why there's a big market opportunity, not just that there is a big market opportunity. So I think he was really focused on that. And there was a really academic approach to it. It wasn't just looking at a McKinsey report or some report about how big a market was. It was We're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to get our hands dirty and we're going to figure out what's going on and come up with our own conclusions about market opportunity and market size. That's the first bit. The second piece was just all about the people involved. So it's, you identify the market, the wave of change, and you try to go out and identify the companies that are best positioned to take advantage of that. The challenge there is twofold. One, you got to execute and get in there. Because the best companies always have their choice of why they take capital from others. And then you've really got to understand the people involved. That was where the art was for him, was the understanding the people. And the keys to that were, did they understand how to build a culture of attracting, retaining people? And and I said that earlier, but for him, a lot of that came down to, was the CEO an A player willing to hire other A players and delegate? And I think that's one of the things that young CEOs struggle the most with is delegating. Early on, especially, they think they can kind of do it themselves and they'll hire people that may or may not be able to do the job. Who knows? But the best companies, and if you look at the best ones over time that he's invested in, that we've invested in, it's been the ones run by CEOs, management teams, that it's just strength on strength on strength across the board and from a leadership perspective down, there's just an expectation that this is a
2: team effort over time. So those are some of the pieces to it. Did you give an example that you've lived of that combination? What it feels like to be investigating a wave when you don't necessarily know that it is one yet? Facebook would be an interesting one because it was so early days in the rise of social media
3: and what that was. And what's really interesting about that is I don't think my dad ever used Facebook. I'm sure it was never on his phone. I know he didn't have an account, so he's not a user, which is an interesting one. But he saw that. He understood the fact that people were communicating differently, and there was a reason that they were communicating differently, and there was a real hook to it. He understood the importance of sharing pictures and photos, which was one of the key sort of aspects of those early days. He went out and met with a number of the companies that were sort of in that space. And there were several sort of early days, whether it was Friendster or others, but we were able to identify Facebook as one of those companies and met with the team early days. And when our team met with Facebook for the first time, it was Mark Zuckerberg, Owen Venata, Matt Kohler, some of the real key early people And I think that was one of the first things that my dad saw was that, holy cow, this isn't just one person, Mark. This is some incredibly talented people on the table. And wow, how capable are they? It was kind of seeing the working relationship with those folks. We invested in Facebook in August of 2008. The business was super early. The revenue that the company had at that point was not what it was going to be. Years going forward, it was sort of test revenue, trying to figure out how they were going to monetize the platform. And so it was seeing through all of that and understanding what that could be. So the process was identifying that wave of change, how people were going to communicate, seeing that team of people that was just a player after a player after a player across the board who were just rabid about building the company and then sort of projecting forward. How big of a business that could be. Now, we had no clue that it would ever become what it would become. We were hopeful for something a fraction of that size. That was one where it was really cool for me. I had just started at the firm. You know, I graduated from business school in 2012. Start. Yeah. And I remember my business school class, there were a couple of people that left our class to go to Facebook to join. And maybe that was the right decision, but to see my dad shape shift into something that you wouldn't imagine somebody at his point in his career doing and understanding and getting in the weeds. So how old was he when he made that
0: in 2008? Almost 70. Pretty amazing. David, I love that example. Any other company memories with your dad that really stand out?
3: I'd have to say that the company that I was there for that has been most impactful to my career has been Palantir. So for those of you who don't know, Palantir, simply put, helps customers visualize, analyze, and take action on their data. And this could be anything from a government agency planning and executing citizen services to a, a global distributor automating their logistics networks to a bank that's implementing fraud detection. I mean, a lot of use cases. We identified Palantir in the really early days of cloud-based data analytics. We had a private company of ours, Zappos, be purchased by Amazon. Candidly, it's always nice to have a a successful acquisition, but the the real benefit for us was really a new lens into what was going on within Amazon. This was in July of 2009. We started to have increasing conversations with our private companies about this thing called AWS, Amazon Web Services. And what we noticed was that our companies were increasing their spend monthly from X a month to, to 2X a month to 5X a month and so on. It's the kind of growth that you only really see when something really different is going on. And so what was going on was the cost of compute, of data storage compressed so so massively and intensely that companies could just more easily and cost-effectively store and analyze larger data sets than, than they could before. And and this was a really big deal. And we realized that companies addressing this need to help companies sift through all this data to help make better strategic decisions were going to have the potential to really benefit. And this probably sounds really simple at this point, but at, when we were looking at making this investment back in 2009, it, 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 we felt like it was a real breakthrough. So talking about waves of change, this was a big one, full stop. And so we looked for companies in the data analytics space that were building something special. Enter Palantir. We met the company through Peter Thiel, who was kind enough to introduce us to the CEO, Alex Karp. From our first meeting with the company in 2009, we knew the company was different. Whether it was in the conference room at Palantir's Palo Alto offices or walking with Alex Karp at The Dish at Stanford, we spent time getting to know the team and what made them tick. And I guess to just point out two th- key things. First, they said outright they had no interest in being public, a public company. And that's not what typical entrepreneurs say to venture capitalists. But for our team, that got us excited. For us, maybe we thought maybe we had found a company that really wanted to build something big without being focused on any short-term outcome. The second thing, they were truly mission-driven. And I feel as though a lot of companies say they're mission-driven, but being mission-driven about some mundane software versus being mission-driven about helping to defend and protect democracy for the United States and its allies, they're really different things. And so I know the skeptic may hear the mission-driven talk from Palantir, and they may not believe it. I spent time in the Palo Alto office, the New York office, the Middle East offices in Abu Dhabi. And I can tell you firsthand, the mission was and always is present. Protect the Shire, that's the saying. And that was really cool. We thought so anyway. So we did more work on the company, which included attending their annual GovCon conference in Washington, D.C., and that really helped us to really verify what we had initially thought. Well, what was incredible was that in those days, the company didn't really have a traditional sales team the salespeople were called forward deployed engineers. And I, I believe that they still may be, they honestly weren't even targeting commercial customers. The company was focused on selling to large government agencies, but banks and, and, and other companies heard about the product and came knocking on Palantir's door. And we thought that was a really good sign. And so this was all part of a major wave of change in data analytics and candidly a change in the government and government agencies becoming attractive customers versus the customer to be avoided at all costs. We'd always felt like those were tough customers, long sales cycles, lumpy, uh, but that was really starting to, to shift. And we felt like we had something really special in Palantir. And so in the fall of 2009, we invested. And it was a long journey with the company for over nearly 13 years of ownership, but worked out really well for us. Today, Palantir is roughly $40
2: billion market cap company. There's not many of those that get built, and we're incredibly proud of that investment. Just say a bit about your dad and your philosophy around what you're willing to pay for the best business riding the best wave. I'll just quote my dad. You never pay too much for your best businesses. Full stop. In one of those companies,
3: we were actually trying to buy shares from a selling shareholder. And we were debating whether or not we were going to offer $9 or (laughs) $9.50 for the shares. Turns out it didn't matter at all, but we grinded hard on those 50 cents. That's the ultimate answer is every time you invest in the best companies, it feels expensive at the time. Back to Intel, $26 million, that felt expensive at the time. And I can't recall what Intel looked like then, but for Gordon and Bob, they're like, I can't believe you're paying this price. You're crazy. So I think my dad probably thought he was a little crazy too.
2: Most of the best companies we've ever invested in have felt very expensive. How do you deal with that? Next year, next month, you're going to face some similar situation. you just repeat that to yourself and say, who cares? Not that simply.
3: We always care. We think about it and we care, but it's all about forecast error. The way that the investment process works is you meet the company, you do the work, you come up with the model that you think that business is going to look like. And the reality is, you're always wrong. We're in the business of being wrong from a financial modeling perspective. Yeah. Either we've overestimated it or we've underestimated it. I cannot remember a time where we invested in a private company where we got it just right. That's very, very difficult to do. And what you learn over time is that the companies that work out better. Work out so much better from a revenue growth trajectory perspective and the durability of that growth, you can't possibly forecast it. And it's not even just in early stage companies. I think about a company like ServiceNow. You know, when ServiceNow went public five years after its IPO, the revenues were 2x what analysts were projecting at the time of the IPO. That's not even an early stage company. So, sort of power of growth and compounding and We just know over time from pattern recognition that when you get it really right, you get it really right.
0: As we're canvassing your dad's life, I mean, a couple things stand out to me. One is he was extremely devoted to others. He was devoted to your family, his family, and he was clearly devoted to his work. And I guess the thing that I'm struggling to understand is how he started teaching. I mean, I have to imagine this was a very full life with all that was going on a young family building an investment firm. And somewhere along the line, he decided that he was going to invest a substantial amount of time, both traveling to Virginia to teach there, teaching at GSB. I've heard a few stories of the early days of that teaching. I think Irv Grosbeck was teaching a venture class that had so much demand at Stanford that they needed another teacher and your dad was became that other teacher. But would you just reflect back, I mean, to the extent you re- recall his posture toward teaching, why he invested so much time and effort into it, what he felt he got from it. What's funny
3: is it started before Stanford. He initially started teaching at the University of Virginia at the Darden Business School. My parents met at UVA and have always had a, a love of Charlottesville and, and Virginia. And they were back there, I think for a law school reunion or something like that, and they were literally walking by the business school. And my father had been talking to my mom about, gosh, you know, it'd be pretty cool to, maybe I should teach at some point. Probably said a little differently. I'm speaking like how I would speak. But they talked about him teaching and what that would be like. And my mom was like, why don't you go in and knock on the door and see if anybody's inside. And maybe we can talk about that. And literally, my dad went into the business school, was able to sit down with the dean. He just happened to be there and talked to him about this idea he had for teaching this course on venture capital and entrepreneurship. And Dart didn't have that and thought it would be kind of interesting. And literally that was the beginning of him teaching, was him just not really thinking about process or how I would do it or whatever. Just he'd been thinking about it in his head and he just went and knocked on the door. That was really the beginnings of it. I think at the end of the day, my dad He's a teacher. I mean, he just is. He was a teacher in business schools. He was a teacher in our family. He's a teacher in our firm. The extent that everybody just really understands sort of his principles. That's probably always been in him. That desire to teach others and watch them grow and be successful. I talked about what drove him being success, but also just seeing other people be successful. Like that was part of success to him. And so what he got from that was, I think, a number of different things. But as another way for him to learn. I mean, we talk about lifelong learning. The people that he was able to attract to come to his class over the years was incredible. And I remember him coming home at night and being like, oh, my gosh, you're never going to believe who was in my class today, whether it was you know Peter Thiel or Mike Maples or whoever. And I know you guys probably feel the same way. These people that are just really good at what they do – And so I think my dad looked at it as twofold. A, he can create this framework to bring this incredible set of knowledge and experience to these students, have these speakers come in and speak, but then have him get to be able to learn from them a bit. And then also, over the course of 30 years, he's got thousands of students that are out there founding companies. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been in a meeting with a private company and they're like, "Wait, is John Glenn your dad?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Oh my gosh, I took his class at, at Virginia or Stanford or whatever." And the tone of the conversation immediately shifts. They understand what I'm about, what he was about, what he is about, and it created a lot of opportunity for us. So, there was probably a selfish element in that as well, in that he thought it would be something that would be good for our firm and him professionally, but, you know, it started from this core ethos of just he loved to teach. He did it for a long time, and I'll give you a very brief story, my dad's had a lot of things going on health-wise over the last few years. One of his classes at Stanford, he was just like, hey, can you come with me to this class? I, I don't know if I can make it. We parked in the the lot and literally, I mean, he was like rumbling and having a hard time walking and I'm holding him and I'm holding onto the walls before he gets in to kind of stable himself. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to do this whole class. What was the case? Like, I just wanted to make sure I was ready. And he gets in there and gets the mic on. He's like, hey, everybody, and just crushes it. And it was just incredible. Like, he's done that so many times. He loved it so much, and that's why he wanted to get there. I realized that when I got to see that, like, how badly he wanted to get into that arena, to call it that. He wanted to be in there because he knew once he got in there, that juice would start
0: flowing. One of the things I really want to touch on just on on this was... The case studies that he wrote, because I think most of what he taught, he developed the cases himself, and they were mainly around entrepreneurs yep. that he had worked with, but anything that I mean, you would want to share just about the method.: It was really about
3: recency. You go to business school and there are these classic cases that you love to do, and they're awesome. but I think they're, at least for me, you want to read about what's going on now, what's happening? So I think that was what he did a really good job of doing was writing and building cases and case studies around companies that were still ongoing, still real time, where the questions were open-ended, right? I mean, a lot of times you you study these cases that were historical, so you know the outcomes. The discussion in the class is different, but when the company is still sort of mid-stage and still operating and going, like, you don't know, and it inspired this really interesting conversation in the class where there wasn't necessarily a right answer. There was no conclusion. There was no sort of dotting the sentence at the end of the conversation. It was spirited. And I think my dad really enjoyed that. He was a prolific case writer. He had a lot of help doing this at Stanford, but that was his passion was really giving students, immersing them in what's really happening today.
2: How would a new analyst feel this at the firm? What does it mean to teach a new analyst really well? The first piece
3: is them understanding that sort of art and science piece, which I think is the hardest for a young analyst, because when you're a young analyst and you've come out of banking or business school or sort of whatever that early training ground is, you can become almost robotic. You get a task, you got to do a deep dive on a company, you come up with the model, you come up with the projections, and that's a big piece of what you do. They've really got to understand the other side of it because that analyst might come into my dad's office, pass that sheet of paper across the desk, and my dad just might put it to the side and stare at that person and have a totally different conversation. What do you think about the management team? And the analyst might say, well, I haven't spent any time with the management team. I don't know anything about them. And he's like, well, that's problem number one. That's the biggest piece of it is really getting younger people and analysts to understand how critical people, personalities, motivations are to what we do. That's the first piece of it from an investment perspective. We have built a reputation in this ecosystem, in this place, as a firm that does exactly what we say we're going to do. And we do it with integrity and we treat people well. And if you are not on that bandwagon, if you are not a part of that, that is a big problem. So we obviously... Would have spent a lot of time thinking about that before hiring but that would be something that would be reiterated pretty clearly at the outset I'd say one more piece which is my dad always said this we don't own stock we are co-owners of a business with the person sitting across the table from us the CEO the founder management team we own a piece of that business it is our responsibility to show up to Every single meeting, fully prepared, fully ready to listen and trying to figure out how we can help, even if they're a public company. So it's not the mentality of going and trying to get a bunch of information or poke holes in the story. It's this holistic way of thinking about an interaction with a company. That may sound really simple and not that interesting, but I can tell you the feedback that we get as a firm in terms of how we handle meetings Companies like meeting with us. We're able to meet with companies maybe we wouldn't get a meeting with otherwise because we're not the biggest firm. We're not the loudest firm in terms of we're out there you know, in the newspapers. We ask pretty good questions and we do our best to bring as much value to the table as we possibly can in those conversations. And that's
2: a piece of that training. From the company's perspective, what do you think makes a good question to a company? My dad would sit down And he would just
3: ask, and this is so simple, he's like, what are you trying to build here? And let the CEO talk. That's the most important thing is figuring out the two or three open-ended questions that get the CEO talking about who they are, where they're from, what they're trying to build, how they're going to get there, and not wasting time on closed-end questions that are important But can be followed up in a later conversation. Business model related, hiring questions, et cetera. I mean, these are very important things. For that first meeting, you never get to do that again. I don't remember any meeting that he started without that question. What are you trying to build here? And he asked it in this way that I can't do it as well. (laughs) I I can't ask it that way that he did, but he just, in this disarming way, the CEO on the other side of the table would just be like, well, I like talking about this. Yeah. Sure. That was the way we did it. Is there
2: a second favorite open-ended question that he would ask that comes to mind? Generally speaking, it would be
3: about priorities and what keeps you up at night. He wanted to understand how the CEO or team was spending their time, how that mapped to what they're trying to build. And he would ask that in a soft way, but how are you prioritizing your time? What's important to you now? What's going to be important to you in the next couple of years? It wasn't like the, what are you trying to build here? Like it was definitely, that's how we started a meeting. But that was the
2: sort of area that he would try to hit on next. If he was sitting next to me right now and you got to ask him one question, what would you ask him? I'd like to ask him just how he felt about
3: how he did in his life in general. How do you think he did? How do you feel about your life and have him open up a bit? My mom always called him kind of bear with a heart. Bear with a heart. Bear with a heart. And so he had this sort of (laughs) tough exterior that was up in conversations. He wouldn't always let you in to sort of exactly what he was thinking or feeling. But in that moment, I would love to sort of in that open hearted way, hear him talk about how he thinks he did. I think he did a pretty good job, but I'd love to hear him
0: describe it and think about it a little bit. What would be some of those things that you think he would measure himself against? Coming back to this question of success, it's so critical how one defines success. But for your dad, how do you think he, in the fullness of a life, would try to measure things up?
3: We start with my mom. They had a a love affair for over 50 years, and they really had a wonderful marriage. I mean, he would start there. He would say that she was the reason that I was able to do everything that I was able to do. It might even end there. And it would definitely be a conversation about his children, about my sisters and our lives and trajectories that we're on with our families. It wouldn't get to sort of investing in Glen Capital before that, but I would tell you what he would focus on were the people. Like he wouldn't even mention Intel. He would mention Being able to spend time with Gordon and Betty Moore and Bob Noyce, and being able to spend time with Trip Hawkins from Electronic Arts or Scott Cook from Intuit, it would be the stories that he would tell around them and just being able to learn from them. That's what he would do. He wouldn't talk about the success of a company or the multiple that he got on it or whatever. It would be about the experiences that he was able to have with these incredible entrepreneurs, that he felt lucky enough to be able to work with. At the end of the day, my dad had this humbleness about him where he did a wonderful job professionally and was known in the Valley, in our ecosystem, in the investment world as successful. But he always walked in the room, and I think this was one of his great qualities with this very soft-spoken humbleness. He almost like didn't feel like he should be there but that came across in interactions with people and I think was one of the things that made him so likable, to be totally honest. There's an incredible legacy left
1: within his family, within the companies he's helped to back over time. What would your dad say is the legacy of Glenn Capital? In those last few years, as he turned into coach, how did that manifest in terms of the seeds he was planting for the next couple of decades of the firm after he was here?
3: Most investment firms don't make it for a variety of different reasons. They don't make it from the first group that started it. Most firms don't make it through any sort of succession. It's hard. It's really difficult. Providing a little context, people you know, have asked us over the last, call it almost 10 years, talk to us about the succession planning at Glen Capital. And the way that it worked was little by little, little by little, I started taking on more responsibility at Glen Capital. I serve as our managing partner, so I run the firm. But it wasn't like I woke up one day and that was the case. It was little by little. It wasn't like a switch got flipped. That happened over a very gradual period of time. And then, as I said earlier, seven or eight years ago, it was sort of like, okay, this has happened and we can move forward. I think that what my dad would be most excited about is that that transition happened and that we have a team of people that has expanded and grown over the last 10 years. I mean, you know, I started 15 years ago and we've grown 10X over that 15 years. And we're on this trajectory where growth isn't the goal from an AUM perspective, it's the success of our investing. But he would be really proud of the fact that the foundation that he set hasn't changed at all. The investment strategy hasn't changed at all. But the growth trajectory has. And we got the team of people. So back to people that can really execute and do that. And I think you'd be really proud of that.
2: I have like a very well-formed picture of him, like you can sort of imagine his presence and what he's like and what he might say and things like that. Up against that expectation I've now formed, what would surprise me most about him that we haven't talked about yet? Here's a little known one.
3: He drove with two feet, <laughs> which might shock you. I don't know too many people that do that, but he did. He drove with two feet. He used his for the brake and his right for the accelerator. I guess to link it to his life, he never saw the investment world one dimensionally. He always invested in both public and private technology companies. So maybe the fact that he drove with two feet is consistent. I don't know, but like most things, he made it work. That's amazing.
2: What trait of his do you hope your kids have?
3: Work ethic. And not just at work, everything. When I was young and I'd have friends come over and they'd spend the night, it didn't matter. Saturday, seven in the morning, he would literally knock on the door and he's like, David, here's what you got to do today. And he would like give me the list of things that I had to do today. And my friend would like look up from his sleeping bag on the floor and be like, Is he serious? Like, you got to do those things? I was like, Yeah, man, I got to. I was like, You you probably got to go pretty soon. That's what I mean by work ethic, just like a real deep sense of what your day to day responsibility is, and then how that fits into the context of what your longer term responsibility is, being dedicated to it. So, whether that's work or family or chores.
2: Can I turn his question on you in regards to Glenn Capital? So, what do you want to build?
3: You know, it turns out when you have a firm that's successfully invested across six major economic cycles, in its history, you build some differentiated institutional knowledge right, and a reputation as you know, an investment firm that can go the distance. And so the exciting part is I actually view us as a 50-year-old startup in, in some respects. Incredible foundation started by my dad and now carried forward by a talented, hungry, and focused team. And just to give you a sense, we've grown roughly 10x over the last 15 years and feel like we're just getting started. We don't wanna be the loudest, the flashiest. We wanna have the most substance such that our pattern recognition, our institutional knowledge, and and really our way of treating people and helping companies drive our success. I wanna build an organization With people that really love what they do. And in our case, it's invest in technology companies who are really committed to that over the long term. And I want to continue to execute the strategy that we've been executing on for decades. It's so incredible and fun in terms of what we're able to do and who we're able to meet. And so that's what I want to do. I want to continue that. And so there's no dollar number that we're trying to get to or size that we're trying to get to from a people perspective. It's who wants to be a part of a lifelong journey of investing in companies that make us jump out of bed every day. How can we do what we love every day, hopefully do it together in partnership and be successful? The success is an output of those things. You know, making money, investment success is an output, I think, of all of those things. And my dad would totally say that. And so that's what we're focused on at Glen Capital, and
0: that's what I'm most focused on. In an earlier conversation, you shared with me that while your dad maybe didn't talk about love overtly like we do in in this idea that love wins, that it was very much the thing that was in the water that drives the culture of Glenn. And I'm just wondering how that showed up. How would people feel that at a firm like Glenn on a, on a daily basis? We
3: operate the firm as though we are a big family. And it is not just because there is family connectivity at the firm, but it is because every single person matters. When we have a new person come and interview, they meet with everybody. They meet with the investment team, the finance team, the ops team, value creation assistants. We want everybody to feel pretty comfortable that the person walking in the door is somebody that should be a part of our family, so to speak. And so I think that's one part of it. I think the other is we do our best to not be transactional in anything that we do. And so what that means is the people that work with us that I'm lucky enough to work with are people that I care deeply about. And without going into specifics with any individual, there's just things that we do for people that life throws at them that we help them with in a meaningful way, whether that's with respect to any any aspects of their lives. But we do it in a way that I don't know if other firms do, but we do it because we view those people as part of this family. It's hard to sort of describe or put down on a piece of paper, but the people that work at our firm know it.
0: I came upon this quote from your dad, and I have to share it. I'm not sure where it takes us. It's just too fitting for this session. I look at investing as really two components, an art and a science. The science is the due diligence you do in checking people's backgrounds and market opportunity and the business model and whatever any normal young analyst does in looking at a business. The trick, though, is that's just a start. The other component is what I call the art of investing. And it's probably what I believe most strongly in. And that is looking at the intangibles and overlaying your judgment on the motivations of the people, the intensity with which they're pursuing their business, and how they build a culture in the company that attracts and retains other good people. And it just seems to me your dad really believed in the alchemy that was possible in bringing together things that didn't typically fit together. I mean, again, most people would not know what the Glenn Family Honors Program is all about, but it is a partnership between the sciences and the arts. When you look at the legacy of this program at Notre Dame, it has perpetuated probably the majority of great scholars that we've set forth into the world to become Rhodes Scholars and Marshall Scholars and Fulbright scholars, et cetera. I don't know if there's any reaction or observations you have as to this art and the science and what that meant to him, that sort of bringing together of those constituent parts. Ultimately, it's,
3: look, where do you place the emphasis? You place the emphasis on this financial engineering work that you can do, or do you place the emphasis on the people and the art of it and melding that too? And I think that's probably what my dad got really right at least in the context of what we do at Glen Capital is placing the emphasis on the art and the people and really trying to quote unquote, have an edge there to the extent that that's possible. And I think the edge isn't necessarily the insight, it's the emphasis. Placing value and importance on that piece rather than having it be one checkbox on the list of diligence stuff that you got to do. Like, did you meet with management? Jack did it. What does that really mean? that nuance, that subtlety is a huge aspect of it.
0: Well, that was fun. Thank Thank, you. Thank you for the opportunity. uh... Thanks so much for showing up to class today. For more Art of Investing episodes and to explore all of the resources we mentioned today and more, check out staygrovey.com. That's staygrovey.com. That's it for now. And we'll see you next time.